0: Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel.
1: Hey there. Welcome to episode number 34 of my podcast, Flavors Unknown, where our interview chef brother luck from the restaurant Four in Colorado Springs. I am your host, Emmanuel Roche. Thank you for tuning in today. If you are new to the show, I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I interview trending chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders to discover their creative process, share with you new exciting locations, and find out which new flavors and ingredients they are experimenting with. The website is flavorsunknown.com. Last week, my guest was Chef Harry Cameron from Amuse in Rehoboth Beach in Delaware. And you can find the show notes on the episode page on flavorsunknown.com. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast as you do not want to miss the upcoming great episodes. You can follow us as well on Facebook and Instagram. Today my guest is Chef Brotherluck from the restaurant four in Colorado Springs. I am sure you have heard of him. He is a food network star. If you love the cooking TV shows, he has been in many of them beat Bobby Flay, Chopped or the Last Chance Kitchen on Top Chef. I have to say that I really enjoyed this recording with Chef Brotherluck he opens up about depression and a tough time after his elimination from top chef and today he is raising awareness and promoting healthy mental and physical lifestyle within the chef industry hey chef how are you i'm doing well i'm doing well okay thank you for being a guest on flavors unknown i appreciate that Oh, it's a
0: beautiful day here in New York. You can't, uh, you can't be mad at this.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And we are a great you know event here at the, the ICC from, from Star Chef. So it's going to be a great program as well today.
0: No, I'm excited. I get to cook today here at the program, and then I get to do a guest feature dinner tomorrow night at Lorena. So uh, really that's nice.
1: Cool. That's cool. So I'm um, pretty um, pleased I mean, to have you. You are, uh, we could say, like a Food Network Celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> So tell us what's the big lesson that you have learned after your participation to Beat Bobby Flay, Chopped, and uh, The Last Chance Kitchen.
0: I think, you know, going through the cycle of being on television is cooking on television isn't real. I think that's where you have to first kind of understand that is it's entertainment. So cooking in my restaurants where I'm taking the time, I'm building flavors, I'm developing a dish, I'm thinking about it, I'm refining. Versus twenty minutes clock starts now, that's completely different. So it's about the showmanship, and that's where we really like to, to tell a lot of these these young chefs that are trying to get on the shows. Yeah, it's not real cooking.
1: Okay, and it's not the uh, the real life of being a chef either, because there's a lot of young cooks that are looking, you know, to those shows that they have, you know, in food networks, and said, "Oh, I want to be that. I want to be famous. I want to become
0: famous." Correct. Yeah. I, my my first suggestion is a uh, drop out of culinary school and go to acting school.
1: (laughs) That's a good one. Tell me a little bit about the time when you have been told, in fact, that you can pack your knife. That's done. You know, it was the last like Top Chef competition. What was your mindset, you know, at that moment uh, and in the month later?
0: You know, doing Top Chef twice, two seasons in a row is a lot. It's a big commitment and not a lot of people realize That you're gone for six to eight weeks, completely away from your business, from your family, from your phone, your computer. What do you mean
1: completely away? You shut like down. Yeah, you're
0: sequestered completely. Oh wow! So you're removed to really be a part of the the production. So that's one of the hardest parts is you're immediately placed into the scenario where you don't know these people. You're forced into this house. You're you're meant to interact, and it's voluntary. I mean, you signed up for it. But then you're put into the competition aspect of it. So we're going to give you these parameters. We want you to create this dish. And next thing you know, you're pulling something off and hoping it goes well. And I think when you're standing up there on the judges table and you have Padma and Tom and Gail staring uh-huh. at you, and they're like, you know, here's the best three. Here's the worst three. All you're hoping is you're not in the worst That's three. True, yeah, Hearing those words, pack your knives and go is always, uh, you know, it's, it's soul crushing. Because you strive to get to the show. I mean, the show is the pinnacle of of cooking on television. I think mm-hmm. for for anyone that's done the the Top Chef program, walking through those doors, those those Top Chef doors into that studio kitchen is surreal. Because you've been a fan of the show, you've been watching sure. the show, and yeah. then to be told, "Get out of here, yeah. <laughs> you suck." <laughs> that sucks. You know, it's it's a hard one. And so, and, what
1: do you do? Where do you go after that? Because you're, yeah, are you so, going home? Back home? Yeah, or?
0: no, no. You're you're staying for the rest of the production. Oh man. So, you know, you could be the first one eliminated mm-hmm. and you're stuck there for the next six weeks. Really? So I
1: don't you, think that people know about that.
0: Yeah, you have you made that commitment. So that's that's one of the, the hardest parts is you know, now you're you're there for your pickups or any of the edits or clarifications or, mm-hmm. you know, team challenges where they need a guest or they're filming Last Chance Kitchen. So there's, there's a number of things that you do on set while you're off of the show, but essentially, I mean, you're, you're locked in a hotel room. I mean, okay. that's, that's, you're living in a, in a, in a, Springfield Suites or a Marriott Suites. And, you know, you're just kind of going through the, the motions. So and, the
1: little wheel in your brain here yeah, is you're replaying going on.
0: everything you did right, everything you did wrong, how you should have done it, what you could have done. And I think that was one of the, the toughest things for me. You know, the first time I did top chef Colorado that was more about anger i was angry at myself for losing the show and and i understood why you know i don't i don't question was it meant to go home like i understand that part but you know it was it was about anger i was disappointed in myself mm-hmm. coming back for the second season and doing top chef kentucky that was a decision that i probably shouldn't have made i was so quick to want to validate myself from losing the previous season and feeling like it was unfinished that you know, I went back and, and I wasn't in a good mental place. And, and, and I think that's where a lot of young chefs don't understand is you have to take care of your mental health. You have to be aware of where you're at in your life, how you're thinking about your, your, your choices, the decisions you're making. Everything is applying to how you're going to play out the next few weeks. Mm-hmm. So Top Chef Kentucky for me was tough when I got kicked off because... I think the feeling of rejection is something that hit me extremely hard. And when I got into the feeling of rejection, how many times are you told you're not good enough? Yeah. And that's where it was like, you know, what am I doing to myself? Like, why am I here? Am I am I am I a chef that's even worth doing all the things that I've I thought I was good at? You know, you start to question all of that, and then you're put into a hotel room with this mindset to, mm-hmm. to what's called the cool off period. Mm-hmm. So as you're as you're cooling off, I mean you're contemplating you're going through all kinds of scenarios and it's one of just the worst feelings and especially if you're not in a good place to start to be put in that situation i think you know just
1: and you're on your own yeah right. you're on your
0: own okay you know you don't have a phone to call your spouse yeah. or i mean it's it's a tough situation okay it's, it's a really tough situation
1: so you went into like uh, kind of a, like a depression you know face absolutely at that time? you know
0: i i've had a very traumatic childhood and been around a lot of violence and death and drugs and alcohol and you you name it. I've been around it ever since I was a young young boy. And I think I never realized how much that was going to affect me as a man. And the, the, the walls that I built up mm-hmm. to protect problem, myself, yeah. whether it was being vulnerable or sharing emotion or putting yourself out there I, th- those are the things that those are my defense mechanisms from mm-hmm, that childhood mm-hmm. what happens is is that belts up a lot of anger from all that pain and you know you can only hold that in for so long i mean it's it's you're holding it in you're holding it in you're holding it in and then all it takes is 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 one you know fracture of a scenario to break it and it's coming out you don't know how to handle that. And I think that was where I was at at that point in my life when when I got kicked off Top Chef Kentucky was it had nothing to do with the show. The show was just the trigger. Mm -hmm. Losing the show was the trigger. You know, it it, it sparked those memories of neglect. It sparked those painful thoughts of being deserted. And that's what, what really just made me start to question, you know, what am I doing here? And that depression was magnified. Being in that scenario, sure. sure, because you know, yeah, we'll take you to the store. We'll get you some booze. Okay, well, let me drown myself in a bottle of whiskey mm-hmm, and let me really get into it. Which, you know, that that was a tough time for me. That was a really hard time, and I was one of the fortunate ones to say, you know, I need help. Okay, and and I want to go talk to my therapist, and you know, I I need to be around people that actually care about me because okay. I felt used at that time. And I think when you're in a situation where you feel used or taken advantage of. You're gonna shut down, and that's exactly what I was doing. So, is it the
1: that whole process that you went through, and that you worked on yourself, and you were like really open and ready to realize and act on it? I mean, is it something that triggered you to become like an advocate, you know, for like transparency and about depression, insecurity, and anxiety in in the chef industry?
0: You know, the, the advocacy wasn't until later just because I, I came home from filming Top Chef and didn't continue the rest of the Kentucky season didn't mean I was cured. I sat down, I talked with my therapist and shared everything that was going on, but all I did was try to drown myself in my work. I, I know I have an addiction, addictive personality. Like that's 100% who I am. And whether it was being an addict to alcohol or, or drugs, for me, it's work. So it's easy to drown myself in the world work and especially as a, as a chef i mean you can get lost in this mm-hmm. and, and having opportunities from the show there's so many Absolutely. so yeah. you know i'm coming back from from kentucky and you know i think i flew to new york straight for a james beer dinner yeah. and then i went to aspen food and wine and cooked in aspen for a few days and then went i did some koshan stuff and it was just travel 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 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Work, work, work. And it, it wasn't healthy. You know, I, w- I wasn't resolving anything. So I had to start really getting back into my counseling sessions to understand what I was doing to myself. I was deflecting, I wasn't dealing with the pain. I was I was putting more walls sure. up. Sure. I was invited to come out for a James Beards Summit. And being a part of that boot camp here in Hudson Valley was powerful because we talked about advocacy. We talked about advocacy for you know, childhood hunger and the SNAP program, things like that. But for me, it it made me realize that what I'm passionate about is my story. My story, as painful as it is to to relive, to talk about, to share, is not meant for me. My story is meant for someone else to Mm -hmm, hear. mm -hmm. So when I really started to understand what what she was getting at when we were discussing advocacy, I said, you know, I gotta talk more about this. I, I think other people need to hear my pain and my struggle and the perception of the celebrity chef is false you know i'm a real person underneath all of that and i'm struggling Mm -hmm. and i think more people are feeling that way in today's society
1: so there's um people that somehow you connected with like you know younger chefs and or younger cooks and in fact they can relate to the story and that you are helping them with
0: you know it, there was a scenario when we were in Hudson Valley where uh, i was talking with one of the writers for James Beard Foundation we were discussing mental health and and i was kind of sharing some of my story and as i was standing there this young cook she kind of walked over and you know you could you could see the infancy in her in her mm-hmm. burn scars on her arm i mean you know she was she was a young cook and she's kind of paying attention to the conversation and she's listening in and we wrap up and then she looks at me and she says I've never heard a chef talk about what you just talked about. She goes, I was done with this industry. I was I was done with feeling taken advantage of, being abused. And being a woman and, as well. Especially as a yeah. female chef. Yeah. And she was like, I was done with this industry. I was taking a break. But hearing what you just said, it gives me hope. Okay. So that that was what started. I got on the plane to come back to Colorado. I wrote that essay on the plane right, right mm-hmm, after that mm-hmm. scenario. just kind of came out. When I got home, I told my wife, I said, I, I, I think I just wrote something really, really powerful. And when she read it, she started to cry. She was like, wow, you, you don't really talk about a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And as I started to put some of those thoughts and, and emotions out there through social media and all those different channels, I would get feedback. Thank you, chef. I can't believe you're I, I'm not alone. OK, I'm not crazy. The feelings that I was having other people were having. Mm-hmm. And they were sharing that with me where it's like, I think that's the biggest thing when someone's dealing with depression or insecurities or not feeling like they, they belong or they're looking for validation. You know, The answer isn't to ask them, are you okay? Mm-hmm. I think the answer is to share your, your own story so they don't feel alone. Sure. Because I think people think they're crazy. And then you realize that, mm-hmm. no, a lot of people feel this thing. You just hide it really well. So
1: you're using, you know, social media, which is great. Do you think there is enough other, you know, platform that exists in the industry for you to to share your experience and and really reach the mind and the heart, you know, of those individuals that are suffering from like the same illness or, you know, situation that you were in?
0: There's great outlets and, and platforms. And, and I think having the brand that I've built has given me the outlet to that. I think social media is the beginning And for me, the most important thing on social media is not being fake. It's a false reality. When you watch social media, you're watching everyone's greatest hits. No one's no (laughs) one's posting the the bad stuff that happened to them today. The car accident they got in or the ticket or Mm -hmm. their wife upset because they didn't do the dishes They're They're talking about the great stuff and we measure ourselves against that. So I think it starts for me with social media being being real, posting you know, the raw emotions, posting the real thoughts. But then it forces me also to be open, to be approachable and to be accessible. That's one of those areas where that opens up many doors because I spend more of my time advocating for this type of discussion on a podcast or Mm -hmm. tomorrow I'm heading up to the food and finance high school just to talk with these kids about, you know, this industry because I was one of those kids. You know, I got into this industry when I was 14 and Mm -hmm. I've, I've been cooking for 20 plus years now. It's there's so many vices that that come at us in kitchens and bars and you know dining rooms. Why do you think?
1: Is it because of the pressure, the constant pressure?
0: I, I think exists, it's like the rhythm,
1: it's, like it's, every day. It's,
0: yeah, it's a number of things. I mean, you know, you you obviously work hard, and there's a lot of stress that comes with that. But you're also being vulnerable because mm-hmm. you're putting yourself out there to be judged every single dish. And I think that's another piece of it. But then you know you're getting into these scenarios where. There's ways to supplement that stress and, and and that fear and those insecurities. And, you know, it's after work, we're going to the bar and we're going to drink till three in the morning. And then, you know, we're going to take these pills to stay up. And then we're going to get back to the restaurant. We're going to prep all day long and keep our heads down and barely eat. And then you start the cycle all over again. And then you throw in the aggressive behavior. You throw in the burns and the heat. You throw in the intensity of the rush that's a that's a recipe for disaster Mm -hmm. you know no one so no no life work balance here correct none at all i mean not um, at all you know we i I used to joke that work-life balance was work on your personal life until your your work life suffers and Mm -hmm. then focus on your work life until your personal life suffers (laughs) and that's a thing that it's such a bad way to think about life because you know are you working to live or are you living to work and what are you getting out of this? You know, the mentality of I'm going to work till I'm 65 and then retire, to me seems unattainable. Mm -hmm. I mean, by the time I'm 65, if I work like this, I'm going to have knee replacements and hip replacements and carpal tunnel surgeries and back surgeries. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be broken by the time I'm 65 with you know, alcoholism or, or liver damage or sure. whatever drugs I've been on. Like it's it's so what are the solutions to me? The solutions are we have to change lifestyle. I think we've broken a lot of young cooks. I think we've we've created a mentality that, you know, this is the lifestyle of what it means to be a cook. When in reality, it, it should be the exact opposite. I think we don't have a labor shortage right now. We have bad leaders, mm-hmm. so we have to change our, our culture. So I think that's where it starts and one of the reasons why we implemented a Sober Week at our restaurants. you know, We encourage the staff not to drink. We don't offer shift drinks. We don't want you to go to the bars. We're going to do early morning activities all week long to get you out of bed. We're going to take two hours to do yoga. We're going to go hiking. We're, we're going to go do a CrossFit class. We're going to go feed the, the local food bank. Things like that, I think, having the leaders be a part of it and buy in was the start because that's okay. where it feeds into the culture of the team. So we have to change what it means to be in the restaurant industry. We have to change what it means to provide different benefits for our for our staff members. It's not just about health insurance anymore, mm-hmm. right? That's important. But what about making sure we're taking care of our staff and and their pets and, and offering pet walking services or childcare or even some of the, the mothers that we have working in the restaurant, do we have changing tables and, you know, nurse feeding stations? I mean, just little things like that, I think are important to, to start thinking about, you know, how do we how do we change the culture? But how, how
1: do you, um, you know, from a financial standpoint as a restaurant, how are you, how are you able to cover, you know, all those services? Mm-hmm.
0: When you run a restaurant, I mean, profit margins are slim and that's that's a reality. At the end of the day, we have the ability to barter, which I think is a, is a great, everyone likes to eat. So I think sure. that's, a, that's a very creative way in order to get some services into your team is to have that. Uh, one of the things I'm working on right now is actually working with our restaurant association. I had questions after I put out all of this, this discussion and this essay about mental health and depression. A lot of cooks reach out to me and say, well, I don't have insurance. How do I go see a therapist? And I, I called my restaurant association and I, would, I said, hey, I'm a member. What do we have for behavioral health for people that don't have health insurance? And there wasn't really any programs out there, you know. So we actually found a local therapist that would take cash on the table. So oh, wow. I paid out of pocket as a, as a restaurant. But what it did is it actually created a discussion with other restaurant tours mm-hmm, in town mm-hmm. to say the next charity golf event we do, let's raise money for a fund so we can actually send these cooks to, to get the help that they need or these bartenders or these servers. You know, That's where we can pull together our resources as a team. So now there's the thought process of we're stronger if we collaborate. We're stronger if we come together and, and find the, the ways to pull this off because there's better b- buying power and there's mm-hmm. there's way more resources. Thank you so
1: much, I mean, for, for sharing, you know, experience, uh, you know, about this very um, dramatic, let's say, topic in the industry. But I, I would like to go back a little bit in time and understand. So what what compelled you, you know, to become a chef? You just touched a little bit about your very difficult, you know, childhood. So how, how did you, you know, go into uh, cooking?
0: So I got into cooking at the age of 14. It was out of necessity. I mean, it was it was a steak sandwich at the end of the night. It was a few dollars in your pocket to wash some dishes. It was the filling of family and washing dishes in that first restaurant is what started that. I think when I moved to Phoenix as a, as a teenager, I got into a vocational program, high school vocational program. And it was one of those programs where, you know, you're inner city kid. You're probably not going to college. We're going to teach you a trade. I signed up for culinary because I knew I get free lunch every day, and that was literally my thought process. I had no idea that that program was going to be was going Life to be changing the beginning yeah. of everything for me. I mean, th- these men challenged me. These three men that ran that program were intense. They held me accountable. They set extremely good discipline for me. I never wanted to be a chef until they told me I was good at cooking, and that compliment is what. I became hungry for. I wanted that attention more and more and more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I spent my whole career chasing that approval of that male role model. Sure. Yeah. My boss, my yeah. chef. Yeah. For me, cooking started at at a, at a very young age out of necessity, but then it became the the supplement of the male role model from the street hustler or the gangbanger to now the chef and the toques. So that was where my transition really started. And then getting into a culinary program in high school, I was awarded multiple scholarships. So I ended up graduating with uh, $30,000 in scholarships total to go to culinary school. Seems that obviously coaching
1: and and mentoring, you know, was something important, you know, for you when you were younger. And I think it is very important as well for you today, right? So somehow to give back. Can you give us some example of what you are doing today Absolutely. when it relates to coaching?
0: I, I think mentorship is is one of the, the greatest things we can do as people, not just as a chef, but as a person. I think you have to be a mentor for the younger generation because your experience is something that can change their lives or mm-hmm. shape their lives. Mm-hmm. And I, I think a good mentor helps you see the inner greatness in yourself. Some of the programs we work with. I have one program that uh, is really dear to my heart. Is Griffith Center for Kids, and you know these are at-risk kids coming out of juvenile hall, coming out of broken homes, and you know they're they're living in group ho- housing. We've worked with their culinary program, their food program, and actually built mentorships where these young men and women actually get to partner with local chefs in the in the in the city. And, uh, you know, right now I have two of them working for me, like, and they're, they're some of our best employees. Okay. You know, so programs like that are things that stand out for me. CCAP is another one. I'm a CCAP alumni, careers through culinary arts yeah. program, which is here in, in New York City, uh, DC, Philly, Chicago, LA, Arizona. CCAP is, I mean, they they were one of the, the first to, to believe in me. And it's one of the reasons why I I try to be a a strong mentor for most CCAP students is why I'm going to Food and Finance tomorrow morning, just to talk with the kids. Okay. You know, I, I think it's important. Like, let's be real. They're impressionable. What about the ProStart program? And what is it? So ProStart is another high school program where these young people actually are engaged in a cooking competition or a business planning hospitality program. So it's meant to get them into the industry and award them scholarships. So ProStart's a variation of of Ccap. They started around the same time. ProStart's more of the National Restaurant Association versus Ccap is a nonprofit. nonprofit. I've been tapped a few times as a ProStart teacher. Mm-hmm. So I've been able to go in, take on a team of, you know, four to five young adults and help train them to get them ready for this this competition. So my most recent team was five young women and they were amazing just to meet these young women at that stage in their lives of of youth and innocence and excitement and and, and all those raw emotions of of being a a child, to getting to cook with them, to getting to teach them, to now, you know, two of those girls actually work at our restaurant. One's a server, one's a bartender. It's amazing to to see the growth in these young women because, you know, not only have we created job skills for them that are going to last the rest of their lives, But it started at a high school level, just me making time to be able to coach their team.
1: So let's talk about your restaurant four. On the website, it says that your cuisine is continuously influenced by four main providers who supply your ingredients. The hunter, the gatherer, the fisherman, the farmer. These people are truly the beginning of every dish we imagine as the seasons change. How, how did you come up with this concept? I think it's a great story, And Thank you.
0: I had just gotten back from traveling Japan. I'd been working in different kaiseki restaurants. And one thing I love about Japan is, is the way they embrace everything that is Japan. From the ocean to, to the nature, it, it's all revealed in the kaiseki menu cuisine. I mean, As you see, these four menus rotate all year. It's really special. But then... There's a beginning, a middle, and an end to every season mm-hmm. in, their, in their philosophy. And I was really inspired by that. So when I came home to Colorado and I was getting ready to open my next restaurant because my other one was going to be closing, mm-hmm. I said, you know, what, what's so special about this area? Living in Colorado, what is Colorado? So as we got into that discussion, I started to say, well, you know, we live in the Southwest. Okay, well, what is Southwestern food? As I started that discussion, I was like, well... It's completely generic at this point. It's it's been taken by corporate America. And, <laughs> you know, every chili's and applebees has a southwestern egg yep. roll. Like it's it's lost its allure. But before that, you look at the pioneers, people like Dean Fearing or Mark Miller, they were doing great things in New Mexico and Texas and and even down in Arizona. So I kind of started with just Southwest. And I said, Well, wh- where I live at in southern Colorado, what's special? And I said, Well, we live in the four corners. And it made me question, you know, okay, that's unique. There's nowhere else in the country that has four states that touch. So as I got in, I said, who are the people of the Four Corners? What's the story of the Four Corners? And I started to research and I, you know, read back and you read about the Western era of the the Anglo-Saxon and the pioneer and the cowboy, and you know, that whole agenda. And then you go back further and you start to read about the Spanish conquest and, and exploring and trade and... Coming up through Central America and and spreading religion, and you know, you you get all of these missions throughout, you know, California, New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, and then I got into before that all the different tribes, the Native American tribes. I mean, that's the indigenous food of this country. We know nothing about that. We talk about 2000 AD, we talk about 2000 BC, but it's always about the Middle East. What was happening? In the States, mm-hmm. because we did, we we weren't discovered in 1492. There was people True, there for from, from, from yes. many, many years. So where's their food? Where's their history? What they live on. So I really got into the understanding of like the past. And that's where it started. I was reading about the Ute Tribe, which was indigenous to the Pikes Peak region where I live in, in Southern Colorado. I read a quote that said, pre-contact, we were experts at hunting, fishing, farming, and gathering, which made us excellent cooks. And I said, wow, that's the restaurant. I love that. I, I think as a chef, that's that's everything that I want to know about my food. And even the dish that I'm cooking today. I went to the Netherlands and I met the company that supplied me the veal. And we toured every one of their farms. We went to their slaughterhouses. We saw the feeding facilities. We met the people behind it. We met their competitors. We got to understand the product. So For me to get that veal and serve that veal today, but then put in the green chilies that I brought from Colorado, that I know the farmers who raise those green chilies, Mm -hmm. the blue corn that comes from the U tribe and make a grits out of that. Like everything has a direct connection to the source. Okay. So it's about understanding the people. So when people ask, what is Colorado cuisine? You know, for me, I think it's the people. Mm -hmm. I think it's the people behind it, it's the story. And you know, I enjoy being able to redefine what Southwestern food means.
1: What are your most preferred like ingredients to work with, you know, for each of the season, Because you said that, you know, the menu changes with the seasons and you relate to local
0: providers. For me, it's not about which ingredient is the best each season. For me, it's about the transformation of the ingredient from the season. Okay. I love... Let's, let's take peaches. We get amazing peaches in, in Palisade in the western slope of Colorado. There's this amazing heat uh, wave that comes and then there's a slope. So in the daytime, it gets extremely cold and the fruit gets really, really sweet. Those peaches are gorgeous in and, and the end of summer. So for me, it's showcasing that peach in the end of summer the, or, or going into the fall season for that harvest. But then what's the next phase of it? Because we teach a lot of our cooks what happens if you didn't have refrigeration? Cooking is about survival. Mm-hmm. So how do you get through the winter? So the peaches would then be transformed to be dried. So now on the menu you're seeing dried peaches in the winter menu, and then in the fall you're seeing that turn into a chutney. Mm-hmm. So I think the story of each ingredient as it transforms through the season is what it's about—the preservation techniques.
1: Do you have other examples
0: besides? Peach? Um, yeah, I mean tomatoes. Tomatoes are another mm-hmm. great one. I mean. Watching a tomato go from the summertime, it starts out as all of these sweet one hundreds or all these small cherry tomatoes because they're the first ones to ripen. And then you start to get to your aromas, and then you start getting those big beefsteaks. And then it's like tomato season's over. So we're yeah. so what are we doing with those tomatoes now? Now we're starting to pickle them. Now we're starting to conserve them. Now we're starting to make jams. We're starting to make jellies. We're we're working all of that. So when I have tomato vinegar on the menu in february march it's from last season's tomatoes like that's really special and Mm -hmm. i love being able to finish a pasta to show that or or taking the plants of the tomato and dehydrating them and turning that into a powder and making that into a pasta dough that's something that's really special because we're we're all the work that was done in the summertime you're still filling in the winter if there's any some like
1: new ingredients you know from the region that you are experimenting with?
0: Yeah. I, you know, one of the things that I, I love, and obviously they're not new ingredients, but it's educating our guests to, to understand them. One of my favorite ingredients is Huila Coche. I think Huila Coche is, is delicious, but we live in the United States where anything that kills corn is bad. So,
1: it's <laughs> you,
0: you do not see any Huila Coche anywhere, yeah. but if you go into Central America, yeah. South Mexico, America, it's, yeah. it's very dominant. So, you know, getting Huila Coche is, is one of the things that. I love introducing our guests, to. I think it's something special. So what do you do with it? I like to cook it down with tequila and cilantro and cumin and coriander and onions and garlic and actually reduce it down into almost like a like a crust, like a paste, and then actually put it on fish. So we'll do a smoked fish and then have that as the crust that's kind of baked on there. So I think it adds like this because the huila coche is already chalky and smoky mm-hmm. and sweet. So I, I like pairing it with things that are fatty and smoky as well. Another ingredient that I think is extremely indigenous to us, being in Colorado or being in the Southwest, I think New Mexico, Colorado really touch on this is green chilies. We have phenomenal green chilies, whether it's Hatch or it's yeah. Pueblo, they're both delicious. Mm-hmm. And it's a staple. I think going from Arizona, where you see everything is bright and, and fresh and it's, it's salsas and picos and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know fruit, fruit-based uh, garnishes and, and condiments. To getting to New Mexico, Colorado, where the sauces are really wet, things are smothered. It's a completely different style of, of Latin food that is influenced of that region. So everything is smothered in green chili in Colorado and New Mexico.
1: So is the produce the first step of your creating process?
0: Absolutely. I, I think finding great products. My job as a chef is to not screw up what the farmer did. So if the farmer did it right, the rancher did. I can't fix that. Okay. You know, to get a bad piece of Cantaloupe, it's hard to make a unripe cantaloupe taste good. You can do all you want to it, but at the end of the day, it should have harvested on that vine a little bit longer. Okay. So I think it's getting to understand that part. You know, the produce is definitely a big piece, but I think it's about preserving it and getting through the winter because we live in Colorado. Colorado is not have this amazing growing season like California or like Arizona. We Mm -hmm. we, we have a short window. So for me it's like that's the hardest time. September. We're Every mason jar you can get your hands on. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> applying a technique on the produce
1: is, you know, something very critical, you know, to your concept. But when you are looking at creativity versus technique, what is most
0: important? Well, I think creativity happens because of proper technique. I think you have to understand how to properly make whichever sauce or butchery fabrication you're trying to do in order to find your creativity. Like you can't, until you understand what a chowder is, you can't put a spin on a chowder. One of the things we teach a lot of these young cooks is is stop looking to impress me with (laughs) how much you know, because someone has already thought of it. So I want you to go open up Escoffier or LaRousse and read that and then come to me with the flavor profiles that they figured out. If a peach Melba works, why are you trying to change the flavor profiles? Just change the preparation. You don't have to do it as a Melba, but yeah. those flavors work. If mm-hmm. I know asparagus and egg yolks work amazing together with butter, for me that opens up so many doors of what I can do with those three ingredients. It doesn't have to be a Hollandaise with grilled asparagus. I can take that to a whole nother level and and you know now my creativity says, okay, I'm gonna take the cream and I'm gonna break it, and I'm gonna caramelize the milk solids and there's my butter element. And the asparagus, I'm going to shape into a terrine and mm-hmm. I'm gonna blanch them and I'm gonna do white and green and I'm gonna show the variations of the asparagus. Mm-hmm. And now I've got the, the egg yolk and the egg yolk I'm actually going to preserve and shave preserved egg yolks into a vinaigrette. And now I've got a preserved egg yolk vinaigrette you can change it however you want but it's understanding the approach, the simplicity the technique that was already there because somebody worked through it so it's not reinventing the wheel it's just making it your own So if you take one of
1: your dish, uh, which is one of your signature from what I understand from your menu which is the uh, the tempura poppers
0: mm-hmm.
1: so what was the, the creative process behind them?
0: Yeah, so that was a dish that I, I never thought one of our signature dishes would be fried cheese, but it, it, it's such a simple dish. I had a, I had a jalapeno popper, traditional, you know, yeah. half jalapeno stuffed with cream cheese wrapped with bacon. I love the flavor profile. I really do. I, I, I think it's such a great flavor profile because I like heat. I like salt. I like the fat. I think it really rounds the palate really well. And as I was eating that, I was like, man, I'd love to recreate this. So I was like, okay, I just got back from Japan. Mm-hmm. So I was all about the tempura at that time. And I was like, how do I modify a tempura batter to actually encase cheese? Because, you know, a traditional tempura wouldn't hold it. it would it, The cheese would fizzle out. So I figured out a batter that, that worked to encase the cheese. And then I started to blend Colorado goat cheese with cream cheese, toasted cumin seeds, toasted coriander, and then roasted jalapenos. Because my, my other thing with jalapeno poppers is like the, raw, the peppers is always too raw. You know the cheese is cooked mm-hmm, and the mm-hmm. bacon salty, but the but the actual pepper is never cooked all the way. We we roasted it, we pureed it, we worked it into the cheese, we made the spicy cheese, and I actually wanted to eliminate the the meat component. I think as I'm getting older, I'm becoming more aware of meat consumption in this country. So we eliminate the bacon element, and uh, that cheese is actually rolled into a sphere. It's dipped in this tempura batter, cooked until the cheese is 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 melted in the inside. And then we take the remaining scraps from the jalapenos and we actually cook them down into a syrup and we make a jalapeno syrup. And we serve that with just some simple pickled with onions and uh, a little bit of crumb Fresh. And it's, it's such a clean dish. I mean, people lose their mind over those things. It's, it's crazy, but it, you're it's, never it's, going
1: to take it out of your menu, I guess. Yeah. <laughs>
0: uh, it's been there what, seven years now. I mean, oh wow, it's, it's, it's a staple. So when I cook that dish on Top Chef, uh, for last chance kitchen, they were so upset they lost to a jalapeno popper. <laughs> 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 it's a good dish, though. You yeah, know? I've cooked it a million times, and I, I cook it in my sleep. And it's one of those dishes if I need to to really stand out and and something that's different and unique and yeah. simple. It's like
1: and you it. you brought some of the the Japanese techniques you know into it. So yeah, yeah. There's a story the there. I mean, yeah. it's
0: you know it's the Colorado cheese that's there. It's my story of being in Japan and learning a technique and every there, every dish that I cook is because of the ghost of my past. Wow,
1: that's a nice quote.
0: <laughs> Very
1: good. So if there's a, one piece of kitchen equipment that you cannot live without, I'm not talking about your knife.
0: <laughs> one piece of kitchen equipment that I couldn't live without, I would say, is probably my vacuum sealer. I mean, I don't know how I would travel with all this food <laughs> without being able to vacuum seal it. I mean, you know, I've got 50 pounds of veal already braised and ready to go. Yeah. And an ice chest right there just yeah. because of the vacuum sealer. So the vacuum sealer is important for me. And it's much easier than sewing up pig bladders. Let me, <laughs> let's be real.
1: So you are in uh, South Colorado, correct? Uh-huh. So how would you describe the, the food scene there? Because, you know, Denver, we, t- we know we talk uh-huh. about it. There's a lot of things happening there. But how would you describe this the the, the south part of the, the state?
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, you when you get into Southern Colorado, it, it opens up because Colorado Springs, where I live, is uh, is Olympic City. Mm-hmm. So it's where the, the Olympic athletes train. It's where the Olympic Committee actually resides. That's where the the, the Hall of Fame Museum is. So we're branded as Olympic City. So mm-hmm. so health conscious is, is kind of the first thing that I think of when I think of Colorado, uh, Southern Colorado. Mm-hmm. But then you get into you get into the the farmers that are out there. You know, you have a lot of land and, and you start to see the different crops that are growing. A lot of chilies, you see big corn productions, you see a lot of small cattle farmers. So you have a much simpler lifestyle. Like the wild, wild west still exists in the four corners. And I think that's what's really special as you get into that. And then you still have a lot of the reservations. There's a lot of tribes people that are in their own worlds right now that still exist. So if I fly out to um,
1: South Colorado and then you and I, we spend, you know, a day there and where would you take me? Beside four, obviously, yeah. that would be a, an obvious choice, you know, to have like um, a taste of uh, the area. I mean, it could be food store, it could be no, bars. I, 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 no, I
0: would reach out to, to one of the uh, one of the, the elders that I've, I've had and have, us, have her make us lunch. I mean, you know, a, a traditional corn mush or some, some nice breads or, you know, some, some venison. Like, I think that's something that's really special. That's unexpected. I think the other thing that's unique about Southern Colorado is we have a lot of military. Our military is heav- heavily present in Colorado Springs. And, you know, our city, I mean, it's, it's a half a million people. It's not a small city. What that's created is, is an amazing, diverse ethnic community. So you've got really good Vietnamese. You've got really good Jamaican. You've mm. got really good... German. It's so unique to see all of these different cultures represented. And it comes from our hospitality industry. It comes from our military industry. Yeah. Because yeah. even the resorts, you know, the Broadmoors there, they bring in a lot of Jamaicans for help during the summertime. So they stay. Sure. And now you have this amazing Jamaican community in Colorado Springs that is so unexpected to find Curry Goat in Colorado Springs, mm-hmm. but it's, I mean, we have mountains. There's lots of goats everywhere. It's, it's, it's just something yeah, goat makes in makes menu. Yeah. 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 yeah I cool. love goat. You know, I, I had on the, on the, on the summer menu It was on the last menu. But yeah, I mean, we play with it, always trying to showcase different ideas and mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the hardest part I think is as, as a restaurant owner and as a chef is you have to be able to find a way to work, the sustainability of the farmer into your food you know Mm -hmm. if i buy a whole goat what am i going to do with the whole goat i don't want to braise the whole thing so it's about that thought process versus hey i need 50 tenderloins because no farmer can supply that so
1: we have been talking quite a lot (laughs) and thank you so much for for your time but before we part here i would like to ask you a series of rapid fire questions. okay what's your favorite cookbook
0: My favorite cookbook is French Laundry by Thomas Keller. Great story. Okay.
1: What is the strangest thing that you have ever
0: eaten? Would probably be horse sashimi in Japan.
1: What is the one thing that annoys you the most in your industry?
0: Cell phones. Cell phones. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Everyone's on their cell phone. Okay. Diners, cooks, everyone.
1: If you could teleport uh, yourself to any restaurant in the world for dinner
0: tonight, where are you going? Open or not open. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Fat duck. Yeah. Okay. I love Heston. I think it's yeah. amazing. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Got it. Dream
0: Food Exploration Vacation Destination for you. Spain. Spain. I'd like to I'd like to explore Spain. It's one of the few countries I haven't had the chance to yet.
1: Okay. What type of music do you listen while you are cooking?
0: The blues. The blues. Yeah. Okay. I love what I love style muddy waters. Okay a james you know I, I love that whole chess records era
1: okay pet peeves in the kitchen what annoys you the most dull knives dull knives okay thank you very much chef thank you very much for your time i appreciate you I, i'm really um, honored to have you as a guest you know on absolutely the podcast. thank you if you like this episode with chef brother Luck from restaurant four in colorado springs Please share it with a friend or a colleague, as I always welcome new listeners to the show. My website is flavorsunknown.com. You will find a show note of this episode on the episode page. Please, please, please subscribe to the show and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. In two weeks, my guest will be Ted Lee from Charleston, South Carolina, and obviously we will talk a lot about cookbook writing and the low country. I'll see you in two weeks. And until then, remember, people who love to eat are always the best people.
0: You've just enjoyed another delicious episode of Flavors Unknown. Hungry for more? Hit subscribe. Tell us where you're listening from by leaving a review. And for social media and show notes, head to flavorsunknown.com.